Well, good morning, family. Good to be with you this morning. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin this morning. Father, we we are grateful to be gathered together, as Don reminded us earlier, as the family. How we do need one another. You have put us into a community of believers. And that's important. We need the encouragement. We need the support. At times we need the correction from one another. I pray this morning now as we are gathered here that as we come to Your Word that You would speak to us through Your Word and that we would be ready receivers who listen and don't just hear the Word, but we take it to heart. So Father, in Your grace, may Your Spirit use Your Word to accomplish Your purpose in us in these moments. As we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. We're starting a new series today. First Thessalonians will be in this until basically Christmas. First Thessalonians, it shares the honor with, with Second Thessalonians as having the longest title of any book in the Bible. Long title, but not a long book. Four chapters, making it one of the shorter books in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's earliest writings, perhaps the first letter he wrote, more likely the second letter that he wrote. And it's, it's great because it's really easy to understand. covers very important things, but he does so in a way that you don't have to have a, a doctorate in theology to understand it. One of the neat things about this book, I read somewhere in one of the commentaries of some weeks ago, I don't remember where, the guy said, if you want to know what Paul believes, go to Romans. If you want to know his heart, read First Thessalonians. Here we get a real insight into the heart of a shepherd for his sheep, the heart of a pastor for his church. And um, I think we're going to find some rich things here. We find the story of the church in Thessalonica. And that's where the name, of course, Thessalonians comes from. You know every book of the Bible. The title tells you something about the book, what the book is about or who wrote it or who it's written to. And in the case of the letters of Paul, they're all titled by who they're written to, Thessalonians, written to the people in Thessalonica. You find the story of this church in the book of Acts and in chapter 17. Paul is on his second missionary journey began in Antioch and went from Antioch and their intention was to go up north into more of Asia, but the Lord stopped them. And when they were in Troas, you might recall it's back in chapter 15, I believe, in Acts that he has a vision and God stops him and there's a man saying, come over and help us in Macedonia. And so they cross the little Aegean Sea there, go over to Philippi. Philippi, you may recall, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested and they are beaten and they're thrown into prison. And you recall in the middle of the night as they're singing hymns of praise to God, the prison shakes, there's a jailhouse rock and uh, the chains fall off and the guard is about to kill himself, you recall at that moment, the story of the Philippian jailer. Then... The next chapter, they leave there, chapter 17 of Acts, and go to Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica was an important town in its day. It was the, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, which is that whole region around Thessalonica there. It was the capital of that area. It boasted a natural harbor, so it was a very, very busy seaport. It also was on the Ignatian Way, which doesn't mean anything to most of us, but it's like Interstate 70 of their day. The main east-west thoroughfare that, that actually took you over towards, towards Rome and took you over to Asia, that east-west thoroughfare ran right through Thessalonica. So it was a busy place. It was, a, it was a, an important city. Paul was only there a short time. When you read in Acts 17, it says that he preached for three Sabbaths. That may mean that that was, that was all he was there, so it could have been as little as 15 days. Or it might mean that he only preached in the synagogue three Sabbaths, but they were there longer. I tend to think they were there for possibly a couple of months, but not a very long time at all. In that very short time that they were there, many people in Thessalonica became believers in Christ, including some Jews, including some Gentile proselytes to Judaism. It says some leading women of the city and many idol-worshiping pagans. Quite a few folks in a very short time became believers in Jesus. This letter we'll find as we go on through it over the next weeks makes it clear that the Apostle Paul, and with him, of course, was, was it says in the verse 1, Silvanus, another name for Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had to leave before they were ready to leave. Acts tells us the story in Acts 17 that some of the, the Jews became upset that that other Jews were now following Jesus and the Gentiles who were some of the Gentile proselytes who were following Judaism were now following Jesus. They got upset and they, they stirred up a riot against Paul and Silas and the believers. And Paul and Silas and Timothy were forced to leave in the middle of the night. Sometime after that, when Paul got to Athens, after a while, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on these young believers there. And when Timothy returned with news from the church in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul then sat down and wrote this letter to them, probably writing from the city of Corinth. That's the background. We're focusing our study over these next couple of months in this book we're focusing our study on something that Paul says of this church that is unique. He never says this of any other church. We see it down in verse 7. Look at it with me. Verse 7. So that you, Thessalonians, became an example. Another word for that is a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. Acacia is the southern area of that peninsula, and so it's basically the whole, that whole peninsula, Macedonia and Greece. He says, you, this church, are a model, an example, a pattern for other believers for what believers should look like. That is a pretty high compliment coming from Paul. Would you like for... Jesus to say that about us? Chapel of the Lake, 
Now that's a model church. That's an example of what a church should be. I wonder what is it that makes a church a model church? I'll give you a clue. It's not how beautiful their buildings were. They didn't have any. It wasn't the size of attendance at their worship services. It wasn't the excellence of their programs. You won't find it here in the eloquence or the charisma of their pastor. It's not about how great their band was, how good their music. It's not about their publications or their branding. Yeah, I think those are the things that if, if we tend to look around and we say, what's the model of a church? What should a church be like? We tend to look at those kinds of things. How many people go there? What's the pastor like? What's the music and worship like? What This model church, those aren't the things that the Scripture points to at all. But yet it gives us plenty of insight into what makes a model church as we look here at this church in Thessalonica. So what I intend, what I hope over the next few months as we look at this model church is that we not only learn what made them a model, but we see what things it is that we we ought to be aiming at, what things we ought to imitate if we seek as well to be likewise a model church. and So look with me at the first couple of verses here. Paul, Silvanus, again that's another word, another, that's the Roman form of Silas. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. First thing I want us to see in this model church, the first thing we're going to note this morning that makes a model church is this. God is at work. Notice that Paul lays from the very outset, from the first lines of this book, what he lays is all of the praise, all of the, all of the glory, all of the... the um, Credit for what's going on at this church, he lays it right at the feet of God. We thank God for you. Why do you thank God? Because God did it. God has done the work here. This model church is God's work. They constantly pray for this church, he says. Why do they constantly pray for this church? Because he recognizes it's God's work. They were dependent on God for everything that has happened and they're dependent on God for anything good that will continue to happen. So we thank God for what He's done and we keep praying for what God will do. What did God do? Paul again notes several things. Skip down to verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, he says, For we know, brothers, you're loved by God, beloved of the Lord. It's an interesting thing he says. God loves you. Our salvation begins with love. 1 John chapter 4 
verse 19, says, We love Him because He first loved us. The reason you and I are saved is because God loved us. You know, the verse that everybody knows, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved these folks. What did God do for them? He loved them. By the way, I was starting to say a minute ago, this is a marvelous little phrase, uh, kind of a side to where we're going, but as I was reading uh, William Barclay, his commentary, he made this statement I thought was, was just intriguing. Understanding whose writing is the Apostle Paul. Who was the Apostle Paul before he became a believer? Saul. And who was Saul? What did he do? He was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew. Barclay makes this, this observation. He says, The phrase, beloved by God, was a phrase which the Jews applied only to supremely great men. Men like Moses, Solomon, to the nation of Israel itself. But now, this greatest privilege of the greatest men of God's chosen people, Paul says, has been extended to the humblest of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul doesn't take it. He's not just, when he just says, beloved of God, he's not just blowing smoke. He's not just saying something, just a little, you know, I've got to fill up a little space here. I want to have some warm fuzzies. Beloved of God. When Paul writes that, he's saying, this is huge. As much as I ever thought God thought of Moses, as much as I ever thought God thought of of King David, God thinks of you. Isn't that huge? God loves you that much. What did God do for these folks? He loved them so much. He keeps going. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, verse 4, that He has chosen you. These are young believers. It's a short book and he doesn't elaborate, but Paul right here dumps a big theological bomb. (laughs) Chosen by God. Election. It's what people still argue about and pontificate about and think about. That we as believers, we are believers because God chose us. You are saved because God chose you. He elected you. These believers are saved Because God chose them, not because they were smart people, smart enough to choose God. They're they're believers not because they had a great preacher. They're believers because God chose them. Scripture is very plain about that. Plainly teaches. One place, for example, it does that is Ephesians chapter 1 where it says, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. Before you and I were ever born, before the world was formed, God chose you. You Pastor, I'm not sure that I agree with that or that I understand that. You don't have to. God just says it's true. Understand this. For all of us who have never been chosen for anything, what a big deal that God loves us so much. He chose us. If you ever like me on the sidelines when all the teams are getting chosen, you know, 
You know, well, there's only one left. It's Keith. You can have him. <laughs> oh, you can have him. God says, I'll take him. Pretty cool. But Scripture also plainly teaches, those of you who are concerned, also plainly teaches that we choose to believe or not to believe in Jesus. And God holds us accountable for our choices. We all know, I just quoted a minute ago, John 3.16, but John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You say, Pastor, those two things, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved, and we choose and we're accountable for our choices. Those two things don't go together. Well, it sure seems that way. Which one is it? The answer is both. Both are true. The problem isn't with, the, with these truths. The problem is with the, the inability of at least my finite and small mind to comprehend how these two fit together. Now, maybe you've got it. And if you do, come try to explain it to me someday. But I, I think it's too, too big for us to understand, which is why there are so many folks who keep trying to land on one or the other when the Bible says they're absolutely both true. Enough on that. God loved them. God chose them. Verse 5. He's going, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Two, two more things in that verse that God did, that I see that God did for these people. That God did the work. The third thing I note here is that not only did God love them, not only did God choose them, but God sent messengers. It says here that the gospel came not only in word, but that means that it did come in word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. While God does the work, God has chosen to to bring people to faith. He's chosen to do His work of evangelism through human messengers preaching the Word of God. God chooses to work through His Word being proclaimed and spread through human messengers. But human messengers can't take the credit for it because it's God who makes it happen. And in the case of Paul and Silas and Timothy, it's very clear. They weren't planning to go there at all. They were planning to go somewhere else. And God said, go to Macedonia. They go to Macedonia. They end up in Thessalonia. Thessalonica, I should say. And there, these folks hear the message. It's God who loved them. It's God who chose them. It's God who brings the message to them. And verse 5, it's God, as we continue, it says that the message came not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's God who empowered the message. You see, why is it that some people hear the Gospel and all they hear is words and they don't get it? And why is it that others hear the message and it clicks and they receive the Gospel? It's because the Holy Spirit is at work and God is at work. The Bible says that we Satan has blinded the hearts and minds of people. 
The Bible says that we are spiritually dead. If you haven't noticed, dead people don't respond to things. But what happens is that God, in, He opens blinded eyes. He enlightens and illumines blinded hearts. He quickens dead people so that they respond to the Gospel. That's what He means here when He says that the Gospel came in power. It means it came with the Holy Spirit acting in power to, to ha- enable the message to penetrate Closed hearts and blinded eyes. God empowered. You see, everything that happened at this Thessalonian church, this, this big response to the Gospel, and, and this, this dynamic example of the church, it's all a result of what God has done. No man can take credit. At the very same time, While God does the work, He typically, as we see through Scripture, He typically does it in conjunction with and cooperation with people. We can't take the credit for it, and yet, at the very same time, God works through people. And Paul here calls our attention to the fact that Yes, things are special with this church because God is doing a special work. But He also calls our attention to the fact that there's something very special about the way that this church has responded. There's something special in the way that these Thessalonians responded to God. God is at work, but what we have is we have a responsive church. We have... These Thessalonians who have responded in some very special ways. I skipped past verse 3, you might have noticed, so let's go back and just look at verse 3. He's just said how we thank God for you and we always are praying for you. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus. He notes in that one little verse three responses that these Thessalonian believers had to the the message of the Gospel. Three responses that they've had to the love of God. He summarizes them, I think, here in verse 3 and then he amplifies them in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the verses we're going to quickly look at this morning. Three things that set this church apart as a model of response. Their work of faith, Labor of love and steadfastness of hope. I'm going to start with that first one, the work of faith. What Paul isn't saying is that there are works of faith that they did and that you and I need to do in order to obtain faith. There are certain works that you've got to do so that you have faith. That's not what he means by that little phrase, the works of faith. Just a short time, you'll recall, before they came to... Thessalonians, we were just saying a minute ago, when he was in Philippi and with the Philippian jailers, he was about to kill himself. And they said, don't kill yourself, we're all still here, none of us escaped. And you remember the question that the Philippian jailer asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, well, you've got to join a church, get baptized, start tithing, uh, give up drinking and smoking. And uh, no, what did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you'll be saved. That's that simple. Just what John 3.16 says. Just what John 3.18 says. It's by faith and faith alone that we are saved. So Paul isn't confused. He's not saying here that there's works that have to accompany salvation in order for us to be saved. That's not what he says at all with this little phrase. Salvation comes by believing in Jesus, not by anything else that we can do. What this phrase simply means, it refers to things that should naturally follow genuine faith. See, if you really believe that ice cream is deadly poison, you will not eat ice cream unless you're trying to kill yourself. Right? If you really believe that patting my head would gain you a million dollars, every one of you would be patting my head. Right? If you really, really believe that kissing a frog would make you beautiful, you'd probably kiss a frog. You see, what we really believe shows up in real life. Paul is giving thanks for the works of faith. Their real faith, their real belief, what they really believe has shown up in real life. That's what he's saying. It's not that works save us. Faith saves us, but faith that saves shows up in life and in works. So what were the works of faith that these folks exhibited? Look in verse 6. You received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the Word with joy. I love the NIV which translates that they welcomed the message. There was no half-hearted reception of the the good news of Jesus. When they heard God's Word, they they took it to heart. They, They joyfully embraced it even though, he says, opposition and affliction followed. You know, Jesus described someone who had a reaction like that. Over in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a, it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. And then he, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had to go purchase the field. In other words... The kingdom of heaven, when you understand what it is, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, God loved you so much that He sent His one and only Son. Why? So we don't need to perish, but have everlasting life. Instead of being judged for sin, I can have everlasting life in heaven with God forever. Woohoo! That's exciting. That's what he says. These folks realize it and they go, it's like this man who says, "That's, that's worth going and selling everything you have. You can have that. And when these folks heard the message, no half-hearted reception, they were like, yes, we want that, no matter what it costs. And it cost them. It cost them opposition. It cost them affliction. It cost them persecution and suffering. But they received the message with joy. Look down in verse 9. As I said, he... As he goes down later in this chapter, he amplifies them. Verse 9, he says, You turned to God from idols. They turned to God and they turned away from the 
idols, the other gods that they had been following. I think it's worth noting just for a moment here the order of that. They didn't have to turn away from idols in order to turn to God. It's in the same way that you you don't have to get cleaned up in order to take a bath. <laughs> the order here is if you take a bath, you don't need to clean up because you just cleaned up. If you turn to God, you don't need to turn away from idols because you just did. See, if you turn to the person on your right, you automatically turn your back to the person on your left. What he says is what naturally follows if you turn to God is you turn away from idols. The key is that you fully turn to God. You don't just kind of glance over. It says in faith they turn to God. And they turn their back on idols, on the old way of life. If I were to summarize then the work of faith from just those two thoughts, it might be this. They were all in. They were banking everything on Jesus. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is important. We are believing, we're trusting in Jesus, we're following Him. They are all in. The second response that Paul notes about these Philippian believers, he talks about their their work of faith and he said next their labor of love. What is that? Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. They imitated and followed the examples of Paul and Silas and Timothy and in so doing, they lived like Jesus as they followed the examples of those guys, as they followed the teaching, as they opened up the Word of God to them, then what happened is is that these people, in these new believers in Thessalonica began to live like Jesus. They imitated the models that were in front of them, Paul, Silas, Timothy. They imitated and followed the teaching of Scripture and they ultimately became followers of Jesus. So these folks who were models and and something that we should imitate were themselves imitating other godly people. They lived like Jesus. Verse 8, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything second thing about their labor of love is because they love Jesus, not only do they live like Jesus, but they shared about Jesus. They talked about Jesus. So much to the extent that Paul says that, that the message is, has gone out. Actually, the word here is you sounded, you echoed the gospel message. You know, you go yell in a canyon and you can't stop it, man. It just... It goes. He says it was that way. These folks just couldn't help but but share the message. And it went ringing out so much so that Paul says, everywhere we go, the message has gotten there first about what happened to you guys. We don't need to say anything about Jesus because it's already they've already heard. Isn't that fantastic? Verse 9, one more thing. We already said this, how you turn to God from idols, but read the rest of it, to serve the living and true God. These people had a new purpose in life. To live for Jesus, to no longer live for themselves or for any other 
little g gods in their life. They're living for Jesus. They lived like Jesus. They shared about Jesus. They lived for Jesus. That's their labor of love. The third response that Paul noted about these Thessalonian believers to the gospel message and to the love of God was their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the hope that moved these people to live like they did, to believe in Jesus with joy despite affliction and suffering, to live for Jesus and not for themselves? Look down in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was the hope of these Macedonian believers? Very simply this, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. It's a major theme in this book. If you read through the the whole book, and it won't take you probably less than a half hour to read through the whole thing, just take note that every chapter has at least one reference to the return of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in other messages Suffice to say, these folks latched onto the certainty that Jesus is coming back, and He's coming back as our deliverer, our rescuer. Jesus wins, and when He does, we win with Him. Jesus wins, so we're going to win. Folks, that ought to encourage us. I don't care what else is going on in your life today. Ultimately, We win not because we're anybody, but because Jesus put us on His team. And we win with Him. That was what gave them a rock-solid, unshakable foundation of hope. If you're discouraged, if you're disheartened, if you feel defeated, you need to cling to this and you need to remember If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, (laughs) we win. He's coming back. Let me try to connect the dots as I finish this morning. I just want to note four characteristics of a model church. Four things for you and I to aspire to be here at the chapel if we want to be a church like this. Three of the things I've already said, but just use some different words, picking up on a couple of thoughts. The first is this. This model church was a church that was full of prayer. Paul and Silas and Timothy were committed and devoted to prayer because they understood that it was God who accomplishes the work and not us. We're totally dependent on Him. A model church is not the product of great strategy, nor is it the product of great programs or of excellent leadership. I'm not saying that those things don't have any use or any value. 
I tell you, things come across my desk and across my, my email just about every day. You know, here's the ten steps to a, to a healthy church. Here's a, here's a success. Here's a proven method. Here's a guaranteed. You know, you do this, you do this. Your church is going to be this. Oh, and you get people get to thinking, man, I just do these steps. We do this stuff. All we need is the right vision. All we need is the right, is the right people. All we need is the right strategy. And I'm saying when we're more focused on any of those things than we are on seeking God's face, seeking His direction, seeking His help, our focus is wrong. Without God, we can build an organization that may look like a work of God at least for a while. But it's simply a human endeavor. And ultimately, it's futile. That's why Paul and Silas and Timothy and this church were devoted and committed to prayer. Second thing, second characteristic of a model church is they are a wholehearted church, as I mentioned already. All in for Jesus. Following Jesus is worth whatever cost. No other gods. No distractions. Wholeheartedly all in for Jesus. Third thing about a model church is they are, I call them here, a working church. We have a new purpose for living. It's living for Jesus. Not for me any longer. Not for any other aspiration or goal. It's living for Jesus. And a model church is one where every believer is busy. I like the word it says here, laboring for Christ. Serving Him because we love Him. Paul will write to the Thessalonians in his next little letter and he says, as for you brothers, don't go weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. So you may say, okay, I get that. I should be busy serving Jesus, but I don't know what to do. And what I simply say is, get busy. Do something. Anything. Do everything. Matter of fact, better, do everything for Jesus. <laughs> we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, not to men. It is the Lord Christ you serve. Change your attitude in everything you do and make everything you do to serve Jesus, whether you're doing the mundane stuff at work or whether you do something new and volunteer to work in the nursery. Or go help the, the little old lady next door or whatever you start doing, do something. The reality is, though, it's hard to steer a parked car. Have you noticed that? So simply get started. And then if God wants you to do something else, it's really easy for Him to steer you where He wants you to go. Get busy. Lastly, a model church is an expecting church. Eagerly looking for Jesus' return. Because as an old Christian song used, uh, used to say it, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. What makes a model church has nothing to do with the programs, has nothing to do with the size, has nothing to do with strategies, has nothing to do with leadership. It all has to do, as I read this, with the hearts of the people. A prayerful church, a wholehearted church, a working church, an expecting church. 
Father, thank You for putting a model here. And it's an unexpected model as usually things are. So that man doesn't get credit. It's not due to strategies. It's not due to anything except the fact that You did a work in some unlikely people in an unlikely place in a very short time And out of that came an example for us to follow. Father, we recognize we can't even do this on our own. We're dependent upon You. And so we pray and we ask, Lord, would You make us into this kind of church, into this kind of people? Because the church is people. It's not a building. It's not an organization. The church is people. Lord, would You make us as Your people this kind of people? And then may You use us to ring out the Gospel message to a lost world that is all around us. And they need to to hear the message. They also need to see it lived out in real life, in real people. For that's really when the message is heard. Paul makes mention of that. They didn't only hear the message from them, they saw the example. So Lord, make us into this kind of church. We ask it in Jesus' name.